0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the channel. My name is Rosemary Palenzuela Vicente, and I'll be your host for today. Um, so I'm really excited to be sitting here with Dr. Jennifer Lamb. Dr. Lamb is an associate professor of Latin American and Caribbean history at Brown University. She's the co-editor of The Revolution from Within, Cuba, 1959 to 1980, which was published in 2019. Today, Dr. Lam and I will be talking about her first book, Madhouse, Psychiatry and Politics in Cuban History, which was published by UNC Press as part of their Envisioning Cuba series. I am really excited to be getting started and talking to Dr. Lam. So welcome to the channel.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Awesome. So before we kind of start talking about, you know, the individual chapters of her book, can you tell us a little bit about how you landed on this project and what made you want to become a Cubanist?
1: Sure. Well, I should start by saying that all of our orange origin stories are developed as much in hindsight as they are dependent on actual facts from the moment right. of conception. So I'll acknowledge some of that from the start here. But um, I, I think if the simplest way to explain it would be to say that I had these kind of two longer standing interests in psychiatry going back to you know middle school when I encountered Freud for the first time. Um and then in college, when I started studying Spanish and reading Cuban literature and, you know, early in graduate school, I felt those two interests start to mute, merge um, together. And so I made my first research trip to Cuba in 2009, 10, 2009, I think. Um, and, you know, I thought I was actually going to be working on the interaction between spiritism and psychiatry and Cuban history. That was the topic that I across in some of my yeah early reading and in primary sources especially. And when I got there, and I think this is a classic example of just how important humility is um, at every <laughs> stage of the research process, everyone kept saying to me, well, no, that's not the project you should write. You should be writing on the history of Masora. And of course, I knew what Masora was. It had shown up in some of that early research as well, but it hadn't really occurred to me to make an institution. Yeah. They, the center. Study. Yeah. yeah, and, and part of that was because actually of where the historiography of psychiatry was at the moment, you know, institution studies had become kind of passe. And so the idea that I would write an entire book about an institution seemed almost um, ridiculous. And yet it became really clear to me that for Cubans, there was all the logic in the world to writing that kind of project. And I think the principle I take from that is when I try to impart to all graduate students who work with me, you know, namely that in formulating our projects, we need to be responsive to all of our interlocutors, not just you know where the scholarly literature, the historiography stands, but also to listen to the people in the countries where we are conducting our work. Right. And when I had you know Cuban after Cuban tell me, well, Masora is the project, that's where you should go um i eventually was wise enough to listen <laughs> and that's uh how i ended up there and i think in the long term actually it was the right decision i never quite let go of the spiritism and psychiatry that came back in in different kinds of forms over the years um but ultimately the book is a biography of of this institution masocha right yeah
0: and it's um as as a Cuban, I thought it was very striking because uh, I remember I picked this book up in I think it was twenty eighteen, probably a year after it was published, and immediately I'm like, Okay, Madhouse, that sounds cool. And then I looked at the um at what like the institution was and I'm like, Oh Masora, everyone and then I, I asked people in my family and everyone really knows about it. And mm-hmm. it's interesting that you say that because it is such an institution, I think, especially for anybody living in Havana. Mm-hmm. Um and like it's it's such a it's such a striking building when you pass it like it just it looks so sturdy like it's been there for hundreds of years and it's gonna Mm -hmm. be there for another few hundreds of years maybe yeah yeah, maybe and so like the fact that you like focused on that was was really interesting to me so I think that was really cool um can you walk us a bit a, a bit through like how this project went from dissertation to monograph sure
1: um I think I was fortunate to have advisors who were very clear that there shouldn't be much difference between a dissertation and a monograph in that um, when you're writing a dissertation, you should really be writing it as a book um, just to say uh, skirting some of the kind of traditional architecture of the dissertation that gets edited out of the book. Anyway, you know, lengthy disquisitions on, small historiographical questions that no editor in their right mind will be willing to publish. Um, But I also really conceived of the project from the start. I mean I described it as a biography and that's how I wanted to write it. I wanted to have narrative unity to the project as much as there was analytical unity. Um, And so in a way the chronology of the institution itself provided that arc but also figuring out uh, within that chronology what the story was Um, And of course, this is a story, both in in a literal and kind of a more figurative sense. This is a history that's populated by many almost literary characters, subjects and moments. And so it was very important to me to write it in such a way that those individuals moments, episodes could shine alongside the more traditional scholarly argumentation and concretely, that meant, you know, living for a few years in the madhouse itself. I mean, trying to imagine what it was like within the walls of this institution at the same time that I was, of course, trying to do all the things that scholars are supposed to do to figure out what the contribution of this project was to scholarly literature is more broadly, both in Cuba and and beyond. Um, and the day-to-day was, you know the the grueling process, of course, that everybody who's written a dissertation is familiar with. At the very beginning, feeling utterly lost and uh, not knowing how to begin to make sense of just a huge amount of material. Um, you know, interestingly, I had, the first thing I ended up writing didn't make it into the dissertation at all. It became a separate chapter, but it was kind of the the band aid pulling off moment. You know, okay, I, I know how to make a story out of this. What other kind of stories? can I find? Um, and from there, it, it pretty much I wrote in chronological order, which I highly recommend to, to anybody who has the option to do so. Right. Um, but it also meant, you know, the, that first piece I wrote was actually on the early revolutionary years. And I knew that from the start, my challenge was going to be figuring out how to bring, the together, the, bring together the before 1959 and the after 1959 into one story. Um, because the institution of course straddles that divide in lots of interesting ways
0: and many others as well I mean like as you mentioned um like the institution itself was built in like the twilight of the colonial area so Mm -hmm. so it's it covers a lot of interesting moments in Cuban history which I found really fascinating and I think that's one of like more innovative parts of your arguments is just how you bridge these moments um And I thought it was, like, absolutely fantastic. Can you tell us a little bit about, so, that exact moment, you know, like, mid-19th century, like, the context around why the need to build Masora Mm -hmm, came about? mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, well, thank you for your kind words. Um, And, you know, the the long history part of the project – of course, it was very pressing because if you're gonna write a biography of an institution, you mm-hmm. wanna cover the whole thing, just like you're yeah. not gonna start the biography of an individual when they turn 30. Um, <laughs> although I guess some biographies do, but you need at least that nod to where things come from. I was lucky um, in that uh, a very good friend and colleague, Rachel Hinson had written her master's thesis on the colonial history of Masocha, the Casa wow. General de um, And as she moved on to different things for her dissertation project, She, and her infinite generosity, shared sources, wisdom, many other things um, that meant that the colonial piece of things didn't end up being a huge chunk of the book, which of course you've seen, um, but rather more that kind of telling, very significant point of origin. And it's significant for a number of reasons, uh, as I argue in the book. One, because it does represent this kind of coming together of the late colonial state, which has begun to undertake... Um, the renovation of the charity apparatus in in many places, including back in Spain itself, but also an initiative taken by the island's Creole elites, many of whom had made their money, of course, as we well know, in one way or another from sugar and the exploitation of African enslaved people. And the history of Masorra sits right at the center of all of these different historical trends. Uh, It's founded as a uniquely hybrid institution to bring together the many so-called dementes who found themselves in other kinds of charitable or public carceral institutions in Cuba, but also uh, a group of people emancipados, uh, emancipated slaves who'd been declared unable to work, inutiles. And those two populations along with a couple others at different moments um, reside altogether under the same ceiling at this institution. Um, and that I argue has significant consequences both for how this institution works In the colonial period, the late colonial period, but also beyond it, namely that it quickly assumes this kind of custodial and even sometimes carceral function, even as many of the doctors who are brought into staff it, some of them with you know the best international training, are continually frustrated by the fact that they're unable to really implement a medical regimen at the institution. Um, and and this I think manifests in the tensions that always surround patient labor at the institution or inmate labor at the institution. And that's one of the most important commonalities I track across the project how it is that labor keeps coming back as seemingly the most logical solution, right. you know, in the late 19th century, in the early 20th century, in the 1950s and 60s, as the way to not only solve the institution's problems in terms of treating the individuals who are there and meet and patients, but also to solve the institution's problems in a macroeconomic sense, you know, to make the institution uh, self-sufficient, self-functioning so that it isn't constantly finding itself unable to provide for the people who are there.
0: Um, And needing to beg for money, of course. And
1: and needing to beg, you know, the politicos in charge for money. Right. Exactly.
0: And so can you walk us through a little bit through um, what that space actually looks like like with the mm-hmm. floor plan of it or just talking about it like in terms of aesthetic like what what did Masora mm-hmm. look like from the inside because I think we got a really good picture of like you know like how striking it is from the outside but the mm-hmm. inside is a little bit uh, more obscure.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah well you know there are a lot of critiques of the way it's built largely because um, as those who uh, disagree with the way it's built allege it looks more like a kind of military barracks than anything else. And this is clearly an institution that in terms of its physical design, not unlike other such institutions at the time. And I think it's always important to contextualize, there are things that are unique about Masorra, and then there are things that are utterly typical about Masorra. this is an institution that in some ways is built to contain and to manage as much as it is to treat or rehabilitate. And the emphasis, especially in these early years, falls largely in that kind of former category. Um, and so it is, uh, you know, a Spartan institution and a spare institution. And there are signs there, as some of the doctors will complain for generations to come of, of you know, physical, not only containment, but even abuse, that there are whips being used by some of the nurses. Um, and this, unsurprisingly, bears a resemblance, as as many argue, to other kind of Uh, punitive sites in the island landscape, notably notably within slavery itself. Um, So there, I think some of the discomfort around the way that patient labor or inmate labor is being used speaks to other kinds of resemblances, including just physical ones um, between this site and other sites in this kind of extensive landscape of the plantation of African slavery. Um, I mean, and that said, it's always important to acknowledge that there are people working with within those constraints, um, within the limitations that are given to them to do the best that they can. And that's certainly true of many asylum directors who continually emphasize the need to improve the, the kind of interior of the institution as much as the exterior. Um, but, you know, we have to imagine a time, this is before electricity, this is before indoor plumbing, all of these things will come to the institution a little bit later. Um, but this is a pretty grim space to inhabit. To be forced to inhabit as as some people were who were sent there. And of course to work in for the the personnel of the institution, medical and otherwise.
0: Wow. Yeah. I think you did a really good job of um, I think especially like when you're talking about specific patients, um and their stories, which uh, there's two in chapter two that I absolutely loved, and I can't wait to get to that part. But um, I, th- I think you did a good job of kind of painting that very grim picture, and I think it's very fitting. So in, in chapter one, you pick us up right at the beginning, and you kind of talk about um, the beginning of the 20th century, and you sort of talk about the first U.S. occupation. And you point to Masora as a critical site where nationalist projects were carried out by the U.S. occupation government. What were some of these projects and what would you say were their political significance? Mm-hmm. Or in other words, like why was centralizing asylum care such an important national project? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think it's important to note from the start that there is a, a contradiction in that sentence, right? National yeah. projects being carried out by an occupation government. Right. <laughs> and that was the contradiction I was really interested in because it was quite clear to me that there was a moral urgency around the project of rehabilitating Masorra by the time the wars of independence end, that make it possible for somewhat unlikely bedfellows to come together around this project of of remaking the institution. And partially that's because of just how devastating uh, the last few years of the 19th century of the independence war are for Masorra. You know, we have these figures of just huge numbers of the patient population falling, you know, prey to illness, to hunger to all of the different ravages of the ongoing war, like many in the Cuban population more broadly. Um, And then this kind of scene of discovery, this motif of discovery that comes up over and over again in Masorra's history, that at the end of political struggle, um, the triumphant forces enter the walls of the institution and discover just how bad things are, and therefore make it a, a, a patriotic project, a moral project, to do better, to rehabilitate the institution. And this, this, as I said, is a scene that comes up with almost kind of nauseating familiarity because of course what that implies is they never seem to quite meet the goals that they set up for themselves. Um, But I do see the transformation undertaken by Cuban patriots on one hand and US occupiers on the other in the first decade of the 20th century as actually being quite transformative for the institution. Um, the first director who's chosen, uh, Lucas Alvarez-Serice, is is not a specialist in mental medicine um, by any of the standards of the time, but he is a kind of medical hero of the patriotic of of the independence wars. He really represents a kind of patriotic icon in that way. Um, this, too, will become a recurring motif, the person who's being selected to run the institution being chosen more for their political credentials than necessarily for their professional credentials. Right.
0: There seem to be, um, and, and you, t- you touched on this pretty well throughout the book, there seems to be this huge tension between, like, psychiatry as a profession and, you know, like, medical um, expertise being, like, the biggest requirement for actually running an institution mm-hmm. and as opposed to, you know, People who are like administrators, for example, who are better administrators. There seems to be this tension throughout.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, we we might reasonably ask ourselves, particularly at a moment when the state of mental medicine is such that most asylum treatment, most institutional treatment lacks a little bit of the treatment, uh, namely tends more towards the custodial to taking care of as opposed to treating although certainly there are places um, throughout the world in the 19th century where therapeutic innovations are being um, made. I think it's safe to say that the institution is founded um, with this kind of dual charge that continues to reverberate throughout its, its history. Namely, even though there are going to be periodic attempts to bring the most novel in psychiatric treatment from beyond Cuba, from within Cuba, into the institution's walls, um, the institution seems to always tend more to the custodial side of things. I think raising the logical question of whether it is actually so wrong to choose a good administrator as opposed to the best psychiatrist or the best uh, alienist specialist in mental medicine uh, to run the institution. Because what Alvarez said, you say could do that maybe others could not is is count on his kind of political profile to muster broad support behind this effort to change the culture of the institution in ways that certainly spoke to um, the latest currents in mental medicine internationally, but also spoke to this kind of older tradition of um, moral therapy. We could call it a lot of different things where the idea is to try to approach patients in a spirit of kind of paternalistic charity um, to do one's best for them, to treat them with kindness rather than with physical violence, say,, uh, these are all measures that could be implemented by anybody with the political will behind them to do so. And that's and that's what he had. So, you know he dismisses a lot of the old employees, brings in new employees, undertakes massive rebuilding efforts, Again, all of this in collaboration with the occupation government which has its own reasons to be interested in remaking Masorra. You know, of course, um, people like Mariola Espinosa, Daniel Rodriguez have written about the ways in which U.S. occupiers are also um, kind of participating in this rhetoric around a, a benevolent imperialism as opposed to a punitive imperialism, one in which, you know, remaking streets and remaking hospitals is part of the imperial project. And so there's enough common ground there to bring these somewhat unlikely partners together. Um, And people like Avaracerice and the other doctors at the institution also come to depend on collaborations with um, U.S. uh, charity reformers, U.S. doctors. uh, And this also will become a recurring motif in, in the history of the institution. And it's a result of all of these forces that a seemingly kind of boring decision is made, but one that I argue has important implications um, for the history of Masotra and the history of Cuba more broadly, which is to turn Masotra into a fully national, nationalized institution. That is to say the place to go on the entire island for institutional psychiatric care Um, This won't really change very much with a few exceptions, private institutions, for example, private clinics until after 1959, and also to make the institution entirely dependent on, for the most part, again, with a few exceptions, the public purse. So this sets into into play the dynamic of politicization that will continue well beyond this moment, too.
0: And it's really interesting because it feels almost, I think, especially in like that first, I mean, like with chapter one and chapter two, you really kind of cover 10 years, if you think Mm -hmm. about it. Um, Mm -hmm. And those 10 years were really, really like heavy 10 years because Mm -hmm. you have two separate U.S. occupations. And what it seems like from, you know, from reading it, that that first occupation was kind of pushing forth new kind of um, ideas, like this moral revolution that that you talk about in the book. Um, but then like after the the first U.S. occupation, there was this kind of like period where Masora suffered quite a bit in terms mm-hmm. of um, economic funding. Like you mentioned, like there's collapsed roofs, funding cuts, mm-hmm. population mm-hmm. surpluses um, mm-hmm. and things like that. So can you talk a little bit about um, how the second U.S. occupation under Magoon affected the conditions at Masora?
1: Yeah, well, it's it's this kind of cycle that I alluded to earlier. and. In writing the book, I really had to figure out how to deal with it because on the surface of it, narratively speaking, it's not very interesting. You know, crisis rebuilding, crisis rebuilding, crisis rebuilding, crisis rebuilding. That's the history. That's the history of almost every public psychiatric institution, (laughs) every public institution um, any any kind of enterprise dependent on political will for funding. Um, you're going to see these cycles of things are better and things are worse, things are better and things are worse. Um, so I didn't want to write it in such a way that I was constantly uh, going around and around and around that cycle. I wanted to try to step back a little bit from that cycle and also think about what was at issue there. Um, in to my book, I, I use this term that I Played with and decided I liked it enough to include it of historical phrenology, you know, how you kind of read the surfaces of a period um, and assume that they reflect back uncomplicatedly on everything that came before it. And one of the goals of the book, I think, is just to make perfectly clear that when that happens in 1959, and when the revolutionaries enter Masorra again and say, there is no history to tell before 1959 because everything was just bad all the time, I wanted to move away from that narrative. But I also wanted to move away from the narrative that it struck me really prevailed in the preceding five decades of things are better and things are worse. Things are better and things are worse. Things are better and things are worse. Because every time there was a political change, a new director was appointed. Lavish funds were set aside from Osforja. And yet it always seemed to find itself back in the same place. And I think that compulsion to repeat is a reflection of the fact Of course, that it was always really hard to get funds and it was always really hard to provide in an adequate way for the marginalized populations who found themselves in this institution, again, often against their will. Um, None of those challenges I would want to downplay in any way, but it is also true that the cycle itself is performing political work, that each generation who enters and says things have gotten so bad then is able to say, and now it's our job to make it better. And this becomes, I think, an important part of the way Cuban national politics are transacted, and with Masores as, as a very important theater. Um, you know, for each subsequent government, each subsequent generation to perform that they're going to do just a bit better or a lot better than the people who came before them. And the U.S. occupation governments actually become, interestingly part of that cycle. One could argue they're one of the first participants in that cycle, given the opportunity that they offer uh, patriotic Cuban doctors to uh, you know, jettison the Spanish past and everything that was wrong about the Spanish past and rebuild in a new Cuban present. Of course, the problem is that as soon as the first occupation government leaves, we have this issue of, okay, so are we going to keep funding Masorra? Are we going to keep doing good for Masorra? And certainly, um, you know, the desire is there to do so, um, but some challenges immediately begin to surface. And um, some of those are due to issues of political will and funding. But I argue that some of them are also um, not so much, and I hate to use the real versus fictional. I think the, the more constructive way to think about this is that they are challenges that are being identified and analyzed as a vehicle to making other kinds of points, even if looking back today, we might say, well, actually, there's nothing particularly surprising there. So let me be more concrete. Um, One of the issues that comes up over and over again in this kind of post-occupation period is concern about how many people are entering the institution. And in a way, that's perfectly logical, because what the government did, of course, was to say that Everybody who needs to be institutionalized should go to Masorra. So the logical consequence would be that the population of the institution would go up. But the way that administrators and doctors at the institution are interpreting that is not so much in the realm of, well, obviously that's going to happen because we send everybody to Masorra, but rather more and more people seem to be getting mad. More and more people are going insane. That's why our population numbers are going up. And that debate reflects back on other concerns, uh, you know, about kind of the ails of of a modernizing culture, post-colonial ails, we could even say. Um, and so I think there's, there's a lot of complicated stuff going on in these debates that isn't strictly about is it getting better or getting worse, but rather how are people making arguments through Masorra? Um, How is even the patient population of Masora serving as a kind of vehicle to express concerns about the well-being of the Cuban population more broadly? Um, And all those debates aside, this becomes then uh, very fertile terrain for a second occupation government to come in and say, time to rebuild again. The Cubans couldn't quite do it on their own. Let's give it one more try. And some of those relationships of collaboration between folks like Albert Serise and doctors at the institution and the occupation government also come back at that moment.
0: That's well, really interesting. And um, in, this, in, in the book, you do a good job of kind of balancing, obviously, like the politics of the institution, the biography of the institution, and some of its people, but also looking at some of the patients and a few of those case studies. Were there any case studies in this early period that really kind of struck you? Um, I know when I was reading, I was really interested in, um, the section on the murderous mm-hmm, on, mm-hmm. um, Juana, what's, uh, her name was Juana Maria Garcia, if I'm not mistaken. Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, of course she's irresistible. Yeah, um, she was. And, <laughs> and, and, and part of the reason she- I and love how and many she times was-
0: she fled. I really enjoyed how oh, it touched me.
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, I, I you know- I, I was, of course, completely taken by her story and and those of other patients um, throughout the history of the institution. And, you know, there are lots of complexities around writing about patients. But what was so appealing, of course, about Juana Maria Garcia is that she really shows up within, beyond the walls of the institution. And interestingly, it's one of the few uh, post-colonial um, files held in the Archivo Nacional in Cuba uh, about Massosa. So you go in, there are like maybe, I don't remember, 10, 10, items to look at. And one of the items is this folder of her correspondence with Magoon, with her picture, um, all these other things. And that's because she she ends up making her case uh, to Charles Magoon himself. Um, so she really becomes part of the the high politics record as much as the, the infra politics of the institution. Um, but what I thought was really striking about this period, and of course, many moments in, in Cuban history, but seemingly something really unique, I think, is happening in this moment as well, is also the fact that Cubans and Americans are equally fascinated by individual patients at Masorra. Um, you know, there are these stories of some of the members of the occupation government becoming friends with patients bringing them things to complete the costumes that they're making for themselves. (laughs) You know, there's, there's something happening there um, that I think exceeds the strictly analytical in terms of how I wanted to depict it. And so I gave myself a little room in this chapter to write in a somewhat different voice to make sure that those stories found their way in here without necessarily yoking them to a concrete analytical endpoint. Um, because there is lots of ventriloquism in the history of Masorra, people using Masorra's patients to make certain kinds of points. Inevitably, there is some of that in my book as well, if only to cover the ways in which people are making use of the patients to make their points. Um, But given the number of times that some of these individual patients showed up over and over and over again in the Cuban press, in the records of the occupation government, it felt like the right moment to pause and just try to hear what was being said. Um, maybe not as much always by the patients themselves, although in the case of Juan Maria Garcia, yeah, it was very easy to hear what she was saying. But in other cases to try to understand, you know, as in the case of the general and the king with whom I end the chapter, yeah. why there was so, so much fascination uh, around these two figures. Um, and here I was also inspired by, um, by books in other contexts. Um, For example, the number of people who appear in these kinds of moments of political transition claiming some kind of um, relationship to that pre, to the past. Um, In the case of Cuba, it didn't surprise me that there would be lots of kings showing up inside the walls of the institution at a moment when Cuba was forging a political future without kings. Um, And the fact that there would be so much fascination with kings Not only among the Cubans who are attending to them, journalists, doctors, and otherwise, but also the American occupiers themselves, struck me as really interesting and at least worth note. But the Juana Maria Garcia stuff is a much, um, much longer, more interesting in some ways, more complicated story. Um, you know, there was a moment, you know, where I was just chasing her absolutely everywhere I could. You know, we went to Santiago de Las Vegas to look in the parochial archives to try to figure out if there was anything there, and so on and so forth. And everything that I found became one more piece that added up to this tantalizing story that of course I don't really have a clear end to, other than some mm-hmm. speculations. Um, but I imagined at one point that someone would End up doing the movie version of Juan Maria see I, I still hope that happens for what it's worth. We, she deserves.
0: It. We all do. We all do. Yeah. Because yes. her her story, just how many times she was able to flee, is just so mm-hmm. <laughs> it was it was very kind of like enticing to to oh, read. Yes. Yeah. yes, So chapter three, you title it "The Great Divergence: Psychiatry, Race, and the Age of Inferno, 1909 to 1933." Clearly, you kind of uh, end with the um the the Second Cuban Republic. Um. So can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by the Age of Inferno? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so I should say one of the major changes that happened from dissertation to book was that this chapter used to be two chapters, okay. and I had two very thoughtful um, readers of the manuscript who kindly pointed out that the project probably needed to drop about 100 pages, and that <laughs> maybe one of the places it could do so. So I thank them for that advice. It was very uh, critical uh, at that moment. And so um, this used to be divided in in kind of two slightly separate uh, conversations. The first was about the rise of um, kind of forensic science in Cuba and the relationship of forensic science to masorra, to psychiatry, and then also this this other story about how after the second U.S. occupation. Masotra does seem to enter this moment of that cycle that I was talking about. It gets a little bit better and then it gets a lot worse. It gets a little bit better and it gets a lot worse. And it gets so much worse that it becomes um, a kind of, again, recurring motif to say that Masotra is the inferno. Um, and the revolutionary government in 1959 will again make this point. But I really see some of the origins of that discourse and that way of looking at the institution here. And what's interesting about this moment, I think, is that it's a moment of professionalization for Cuban mental medicine. Um, This is where you really see a robust core of specialists in this area coming together. Many of them trying to Um, bring their expertise within the walls of Masorra, in addition to opening up their own private clinics um, or working at the University of Havana, as many of them will come to do, and just finding the institution seemingly immune to their best efforts and how to understand that dynamic, why it would be that a moment when you are actually having professionalization, consolidation of the psychiatric field, you would also have at the same time this perception that Masora just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Right. And I say perception because, of course, I want to um, identify that there was maybe some self-interestedness in making this argument on the part of not only the reformers, but also the psychiatrists themselves, uh, trying to demonstrate their, their importance to the institution um, and why they should be more central in its running. But also because I think uh, as, as a result of certain trends um, both in the patient or inmate population itself and in the way that the institution is being run, it actually does bring the institution to a crisis point um, at multiple moments throughout this period. One of the most important things, I think, to identify from the start is a trend that dates back to the colonial period, which is the significant overrepresentation of Cubans of color, mm-hmm. marginalized Cubans, poor Cubans within the walls of Masorra, especially once you start to get psychiatric professionalization. Because what that means is that there are now institutions for wealthy people to go and deal with nervous and mental problems um, that are apart from the institution, which allows for this bifurcation of care that will continue for a long time. And that means that um, because of the kinds of people who are ending up in Masorra, there is a certain um, attitude that sets in clearly among many of the employees of the institution. And here we always have to exculpate, there are good doctors, there are good employees, there are good administrators at every point in this history. It's not to paint with a broad brush and say that everybody is abusive. Um, but there are abuses. There is neglect. Some of those abuses, abuses are uh, kind of endemic to this institution. They never quite seem to go away, uh, especially in this period. But some of them speak to, I think, that unique convergence of forensic science psychiatry at Masorra, which is to say that um, in these years, Masorra becomes, even as it's not becoming the model psychiatric institution that many hope it will become, uh, it is becoming a kind of model criminological institution in certain ways. And that's because of the relatively free reign given to a very important Cuban criminologist whom others have written about, Israel Castellanos, who, for example, establishes in Masorra, the world's first fingerprinting lab in any mental hospital that he's aware of anyway. And I think there's probably some uh, some logic to that claim. Um, and this kind of attitude on his part, on the part of others to treating some of the patients or inmates, you'll notice I'm going back and forth between those two terms to suggest that um, therapy is not always foremost in the mind of people tending to these individuals sometimes, um, to conduct research on them without their consent, to publish about that research. Um, there's a sense that um, the kind of goals of professional psychiatrists are not always the ones that are determining the most um, path-breaking research being conducted in the institution and the way it's being run on a day-to-day basis. And all of that depends, as I'm suggesting, on the, on the fact that, um, you know, if there were wealthier, whiter patients Predominating more in the institution, some of those things wouldn't be politically possible in the way, of course, they are. Um, this is also the period where we see, uh, you know, a, a significant presence of of uh, Haitian and Jamaican laborers being brought into work in sugar. I don't think that's an accident, and their presence also isn't incidental to the kind of criminological turn the institution takes in these years. And all of this is occurring alongside some of these really sordid cases of murder, beheadings, things like that that are showing up within the walls of the institution that are helping to consolidate this perception that Masotra is just this utterly disastrous place, the inferno, as it were.
0: And I found it really interesting that you talked about that, because um, one of the things that really kind of strikes through in this chapter is how you set up Masotra as like an institutional kind of context zone, where there's mm-hmm. so many different types of players um and debates and tensions between, you know, physicians or politicians, the press, the patients, um, mm-hmm. so many different kind of elements to it that is so fascinating. Um, so can you tell us a bit – I found actually the part about the press really interesting or how these mm-hmm. kinds of debates sort of manifested themselves in the press.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and I think one of the um... – Important actors in the long history of Massorja, at least until you know the early 1960s say, is is the role of the press in both helping to raise awareness of abuses, um, but also to kind of consolidate this this fossilized image of like, the um. Yeah, like a
0: scary kind of like boogeyman mm-hmm. institution. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. And at the beginning, I'm arguing more or less that. In addition to kind of journalistic interest, there's also some self-interest involved in the way that these stories are being written and that the reporters get to portray themselves as the intrepid heroes who are tracking down the truth of what's really going on. Why are there severed heads appearing at the institution? That's an actual story I cover in in chapter three. Um, But also I think they're helping to um, to enlarge the public profile of Masora in certain ways that have been happening since the end of the independence wars, when the press also plays a really important role in drawing attention to the abuses committed in in the pre-period. Um, but they are always doing so in the kind of journalistic present. And this is, I think, one of the, the challenges of using these kinds of sources to write a history, which is that everybody seems to be rediscovering the wheel, as it were, And sometimes without much of a sense of context, which I found surprising, you know, these arguments that are made after 1959, that there's no history to tell before 1959, have their counterpart in this journalistic present mode that many reporters are writing about the institution in, which is to say, they see things look horrible, but this might be the first time they've ever been to the institution. And therefore don't know if that's how the institution has always looked or that's just how the institution looks right now and what are they looking at and who are they talking to and what kind of expertise do they have to assess what an institution should look like. And so that that lack of context, historical, professional, institutional, otherwise, does allow for a kind of reification of the image of Masorra in the press that nonetheless, of course, is really influential as you're as you're pointing out in the public and popular imaginary um, of making Masorra into a place where parents would threaten to send their children, for example, if they didn't behave. Um, and that's true across the political spectrum. So even once, um, as I talk about, as we get into the 30s and 40s, there's more of a political charge to some of this reporting. It does still seem to occur in that journalistic presence. So every time a new group of, of political Figures go in, or social reformers go in. Um, and of course, the striking thing is that there are people who've been in the institution for a long time employees and patients. And they're the ones who would be able to say, Oh, this is how things have always been, or actually, things have gotten much worse. And it, it always strikes me reading some of these accounts that theirs are actually the voices that are most often absent. Um, you know, that it, this kind of looking at things from the outside without the context of talking to people. And Sometimes necessarily so, because who wants to participate in an expose that might get them in trouble, as these always end up being. Um, But in particular, I was struck by the fact, particularly in these years, of employees who'd been there since the early years of Avanacerice, who are still there. And some of them are actually the worst committers of abuses. Uh, interestingly enough, so there's one person in particular who's farming patients out to work on the, the farms of his friends and, and political allies, that kind of thing. Um, so there is this long history of the institution that lurks in the background of of that kind of journalistic present and yet is really hard to access through it. And so um, this is, I think, a problem shared by anyone writing about the Cuban Republic, how, how to think across these kind of journalistic accounts, if you want to get a a longer term picture. Um, And I, I don't think I've solved the problem by any means, but I at least tried to make it an explicit part of my argumentation that there are some limitations to what we can concretely know about the institution at any given moment, precisely because it's always being frozen in the moment it's being depicted. And that's why, you know, the kind of tail end of this story, the period of Machado Um, which by all accounts seems to have been a particularly grim one for Cuba and for Masorra, and surprisingly, nonetheless gives us, um, for the second time in the 20th century history of Masorra, a journal that's founded within the walls of the institution, and therefore access to certain kinds of information that might allow us to tell slightly different stories. So in this chapter, I'm also actually just trying to use things like statistics that are being published to say, well, this is what I actually think maybe the institution kind of looked like beyond the exposés. This is who I think was actually there beyond the kind of um, non-consensual research being performed on some of the inmates or patients. Um, And so, in a way, to use this journal, um, which Machado sponsors like like many leaders before him, this kind of rebuilding at the institution. It's a relative of his who ends up running the institution, so on and so forth, many things that look familiar. And yet we get a journal. And that journal shows us things that it wants us to see, um, but it also perhaps shows us some things that um, we wouldn't have access to in any other way. Um, And that's one of the challenges for any historian, I think, and especially in Cuba, where sometimes finding archival resources and sources is a challenge. How to use what you have to tell a story that is a little bit deeper than say what you might get from the press alone.
0: Right. And I think, um, and it's interesting that you mentioned that um, the period with Machado was still very kind of grim for for Masora. And that's what I was going to ask you next is um, the second Cuban Republic ushered in this period of, um, Increased social activism, or at least a lot of promises uh, for reform, like social and political reform. So, how did this period, you know, after 1933, really um, affect Masora as like an institution, of politicized space?
1: Yeah. Well, there's a very important Bohemia Exposé published in 1933. This will be um, the model for other Bohemia Exposés to come revealing all of the abuses that had been committed uh, under Machado's reign. Some of these, I think we should uh, forthrightly call abuses because there is plenty of evidence of that. But some of this is also evidence of what happened uh, in the final years of the independence war, where when you have a government that's falling apart, an economy that's in crisis, uh, mental patients are sometimes the last people who are going to be provided for. But that provides the... um, the stimulus once again to remake the institution, to rebuild it, uh, you know, in the model of fill in the blank, um, and multiple such efforts follow, uh, most notably uh, under the administration in the early 40s of Grau San Martín, um, when I think we could really say the most concerted effort to bring Masotra into the line of, you know, modern psychiatric standards happens. Many important Cuban psychiatrists participate in that process. And yet, yet again, things fall apart. And so here we are back to that cycle. So what I'm trying to get at, in these chapters on the 30s, 40s, and 50s is understanding how it is that even though we're still seeing the same cycle, of things get better and things get worse, things get better and things get worse, um, psychiatrists become uh, part of a generation of social reformers, political reformers who are trying to make the case for their broader importance in the public sphere. And um, they're often doing so through institutions like Masorra, so trying to bring their expertise to bear on broader questions of social import. Um, And they don't encounter the successes that they'd hoped um, in making that case, although um, many of them will be influential either directly or indirectly in, in the kind of permeation of certain kinds of expertise into the post fifty nine period. Um, but they are certainly coming together, I think, as a, as a class. Uh, I use that in all the senses of the word, with interest and also with a claim to a certain kind of political and social importance. Um, and Masora serves as, as a kind of theater, but also a demonstration uh, for the arguments that they're trying to make. Um, and unfortunately, they encounter... The malady that plagues many other social reformers of different stripes in this period, which is state corruption, which is certainly not a new um, ailment in the history of Masorra, but by many accounts reaches uh, kind of spectacular heights during this period. So you have uh, these botellas, these phantom jobs that people are being given at Masorra, which since it's a state institution, it becomes this kind of vehicle of political largesse. You get a job that you never show up to, but you get paid to doing it, get paid to do it. There's plenty of that at Masorra. Um, but there are also plenty of really good doctors trying to do really good work. And the two things um, run, along, run alongside each other hand in hand through the ups and downs, the vicissitudes of state politics. But I think, um, you know, what's really interesting about this period is on one sense, the conviction on the part of psychiatrists that they should influence not only what's happening in Masora, but also what's happening beyond Masora Um, and their claims to do so, which are grounded increasingly as we get to the 1950s on the rapidly evolving state of of international psychiatry itself, the emergence of therapeutics of new kinds, you know the shock therapies, psychopharmaceuticals, of course, uh, talk therapy involving, evolving in important ways in these years. So internationally, this is a really important period of development for psychiatry. Much of that is mirrored and reflected in Cuba as well. Um, so you, get, you know, Cuba's first electroshock machines being built in this period. You see the consolidation of a community of Freudian and other psychoanalysts in Cuba in this period. All of those I think are really interesting stories in their own right. Um, and although many of those actors also try to press their influence on Masora and on the public sphere, they, have, they encounter challenges um, in, in both efforts, I think we could say
0: absolutely and um I want to talk about the next two chapters together um mm-hmm. because I think I think they complement each other really well because obviously we're crossing that 1959 divide um and so talking about you know the transition to like a new revolutionary period after the 26th of July movement um what was the revolutionary government's interest in Masora and how did it serve the project, you know, that revolutionary kind of project in the Mm -hmm. early stages. And Mm -hmm. if you can also um, talk to us a little bit about um, Eduardo Bernabe Ordaz as like a director and how he kind of differs from Seriza, for example.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, in some ways, this is a familiar story. You know, a new government comes to power. It enters the walls of Mazorra and finds their um, disaster. And it is very clear that in 1958, conditions had deteriorated significantly, even though Batista, like many leaders before him, did all the usual kind of performance of charity, interest, investment in the hospital with some real results. Um, But 58 had been pretty disastrous for the hospital. There was a so-called safra de muertes, Mm. in which um, many patients died in a series of of cold January nights. That, of course, is uh, an episode that will be repeated in, in recent Cuban history, um, and that again creates this kind of consensus on the urgency of rebuilding the hospital. And Fidel Castro, um, again echoing Mastorra's past, picks to lead the hospital not one of the prominent psychiatrists who we've just been talking about, but rather um, an anesthesiologist Ordas, who'd been a, a very close ally of his in the battles of the Sierra. Um, and Ordas will end up leading the institution for several decades to come. Mm -hmm. So becomes, I mean, the the project in some ways is bookended by uh, Avedesarisa on one hand and and Ordaz on the other, because they consume so many of the decades of the history of the institution, but also because there is such an interesting reflection in the two of them, the ways in which Masorra becomes an issue that's politically urgent, and therefore a kind of political solution is crafted for it, even in the form of the director chosen for it. Um, and by all accounts, you know Ordas is as serious and dedicated as Avaras Risa was before him in remaking this institution, and and really making its patients, um, you know, the patients reportedly referred to him as their father. Um, but I think we could also generalize and say Ordas is one of his goals is to kind of keep the patients of the institution part of the consciousness, a, a part of the awareness, conscious awareness of the revolutionary government, you know, to make sure that they're always fed, no matter what, um, and also part of the kind of popular consciousness more broadly. So he undertakes uh, again, by all accounts, a very important and enduring reconstruction of the institution uh, which touches almost every aspect of its functioning. while also, as I draw attention to in the book, reprising some of the debates, of the techniques and trends that we had seen in the institutions past, including um, this really intensive reliance on patient labor as a vehicle of delivering therapy, but also of course uh, creating this kind of imaginary link between what's happening with the patients inside this institution and what increasingly as we get uh, to the later 60s, all Cubans are being called on to do on behalf of the revolution, which is to perform voluntary projective labor. Um, and that, of course, as I suggest in the book, has a much longer and, and somewhat ambivalent history in, in, in within the walls of Masorha. Um, And, you know, I think it's also important to point out that this kind of politicization under Ordaz had its downsides, just as it had under Abena say There are allegations from the start that he, like his predecessors, is sometimes inappropriately using patient labor. Um, so that's kind of one Critique that I think we have to take quite seriously, but also the fact that, you know, um, this is a very politicized institution. And that means that you have allegations from the start. And I think, again, that it's safe to say there is truth here that political opponents of the government are ending up within the walls of the institution relatively early on, some of them to be rehabilitated through employment at the institution, so the idea that Ordas is kind of a safe person to watch over people who couldn't be trusted to work elsewhere, but also, and you know, um, as we'll talk about this later, um, you know, the fact that um, individuals who oppose the government are also being sent there for coercive, quote unquote, treatment, um, or to be institutionalized against their will. Um, and all of those things are possible because, because of these close ties between Ordas and the revolutionary government.
0: And one of the, one of my um, favorite parts of the book was what you cover in chapter six, where I find really interesting is like this notion of like the government attempting to measure the impact of the revolution Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. just discussing like the revolution's effect on the minds of everyday Cubans. I thought was really fascinating because of this kind of like, not just thinking about Masoda as like an institution, but just this focus on psychiatry and psychology Mm -hmm. and understanding the minds and like the emotions and the will of people. Can you talk to Mm -hmm. us a little bit about what you cover in that chapter?
1: Sure. Yeah, well, here, of course, uh, a decision was made that uh, I knew would be problematic for some reviewers, but I felt was essential, which is that it was necessary to stray outside the walls of Masotra a little bit. Um, And partially this just was because relatively little had been written about the history of Cuban psychiatry. And so I wanted to understand um, both the impact of, of the revolution within the walls of a psychiatric institution but also where possible, the impact of the sciences, psychiatry, psychology, et cetera, on the revolution itself. Um, and so this happens in Chapter 6 and also to some degree in Chapter 7, thinking about the role that some psychiatrists assign to themselves of trying to extend the, the revolution into everyday minds. Uh, we should point out here that the vast majority of Cuba's psychiatrists depart. Cuba, relatively early on in the revolution, for different reasons. And the folks who remain, interestingly, um, some of them, of course, are, are committed Marxists. Um, some of them actually have been committed Marxists for some time by the time the revolution happens. But the block that sticks around um, actually tends to be those psychiatrists um, affiliated with uh, biological paradigms for treating mental illness. So less the psychoanalysts. There's a whole kind of separate story about what happens to psychoanalysis um, than the folks who, for example, are the pioneers of psychopharmaceuticals in Cuba, of shock therapies in Cuba, et cetera. And their relationship to this politicization is a little bit more complicated. But then there's another group, um, and José Anjan Bustamante, foremost among them, who have become closely allied with the revolutionary government, which includes allegations from early on that he's assisting with psychiatric torture of, of political opponents of that government. Um, but then there is this kind of broader sense among the psychiatrists who remain of trying to like their predecessors, and we should say some of them were those predecessors, so this generation crosses the 59th divide, of again demonstrating the relevance of their expertise to a new political context. And I think it's fair to say for the most part, the revolution doesn't really trust Psychiatrists as a whole, there is a kind of bourgeois taint to the profession, uh, which isn't helped by the fact that so many of them leave. There's a bourgeois taint to Freudianism, which has a lot to do with, again, complicated dynamics of um, Freud within the Soviet Union, etc. But that doesn't stop the revolutionary government, I argue, from drawing on some of their discourses and even some of their techniques in undertaking its own project of of, uh, kind of social engineering, as it were. And there are microcosms of this. So psychiatrists like the revolution more broadly is trying to treat homosexuality within the walls of Masora, which, of course, the revolution is also doing uh, well beyond the walls of Masora. There are psychiatric or psychological professionals involved in both of those enterprises. So there is a kind of mirroring effect. But I also found it really striking that the way that the revolution talks about political problems sounds psychiatric you know, they talk about um, being politically opposed to the revolution as a kind of psychiatric disease. And all of these different diseases are kind of conflated with each other in a way that um, really resembles the kind of language that is being used in very different political contexts, namely Cold War United States, to similarly campaign against homosexuality, etc. And I think that language is important, because it suggests a kind of transfer of reins within this project of of biopolitics that psychiatrists and social reformers of different kinds tried to undertake before 1959 into the hands of the government itself, which obviously has a lot more power to carry that project to fruition um, than professionals did before. But then there are really interesting uh, kind of other sides of this story, including for example, uh, the role of psychologists um, many of whom come of age after the revolution and are explicitly affiliated with or linked to it, politically speaking, of um, carrying out studies in factories to try to figure out if workers are working efficiently, of lending their expertise to numerous um, realms and, and aspects of revolutionary process. So all of those things are kind of happening side by side um, and, and sometimes across purposes, but in a way that in spite of the rev- relatively low profile of psychiatrists, in the early revolution, nonetheless, seems to make it as though psychiatry is everywhere. Psychiatrists, not so much, psychiatry and its discourse,
0: its techniques, yes. Absolutely. And I thought that was really. Really kind of interesting and I, I did think that it fit into the book. I don't think it felt too far outside of like the scope of what you were trying to do. I certainly think it, it was it blended in really well to the rest of the book, which obviously like you're not just discussing an institution, you're discussing obviously psychiatry more broadly as well, and not just necessarily like, you know, masora as a place.
1: Um, oh i I'm, I'm glad that you you feel the same way <laughs> I appreciate it
0: I think I because I think it's you can't you can't separate the two you know like I think it's right. really important to kind of discuss both things together um I right. was surprised a little bit to when I read chapter seven where you you kind of take us away from Havana for a moment mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. um you kind of bookend it in nineteen eighty and sort of talk about like the boat lift and that moment which you know people who are familiar with it know that it's it's known for um You know, like, a lot of the rhetoric is, you know, Castro emptied the jails, emptied the the Mm -hmm. asylums, and just kind of sent all these undesirable people to uh, the United States and during the boat lift. And I I, I think you did a really interesting job kind of, like, framing this chapter and kind of talking about um, this uh, sort of, like, reciprocal phenomenon and something that sort of transcends geographical barriers. Can you talk to us a little bit about, like, what 1980 kind of means and how... um, cubans understood it and communicated it so much in like psychological you know quote-unquote language
1: sure yeah well i i should say that originally the project ended with chapter six um and chapter seven was written in a kind of flash of inspiration uh in about two weeks thanks oh, wow. to the putting of my dissertation advisor Lilian guerra who said you have to give masora and and mariel a whole chapter Right. which originally it was two paragraphs in in the conclusion. She said, no, no, this needs to be a whole chapter. Um, and I knew she was right. It was one of those things where, you know, you felt like things were getting unwieldy. Maybe it's time to shut it down. Um, but since they'd already gotten unwieldy, why don't we open up even right. more? And and particularly because of the fact, as you just pointed out, that part of the kind of common understanding of the boat lift becomes that patients from Masora were forcibly removed along with um, prisoners in jails and things like that. And therefore bring Masorra in a certain way to Miami. And as I argue in the book, well beyond Miami with them. Um, And so 1980 was a kind of obvious inflection point in that way. I thought it was also important to cover the fact that by, you know, later in the decade, you do have um, really concerted allegations coming out about, Uh, psychiatric torture of a political dissonance within the walls of Masorra and to try to piece out the relationship between Marielle and those revelations. But I also wanted to cover in this chapter some of the things that had um, animated my work elsewhere in the book. So um, not just to try to understand once more the debates about Masorra and what those political debates mean, but also why those debates become so significant to so many Cubans on both sides of the Florida Straits. And I think, you know, one of the points that I wanted to make here is that Masorra becomes much more than itself very early in its history. It becomes a way to talk about politics, to talk about race, to talk about gender, science, all these other things. Um, But it also becomes a way for Cubans to talk about their own realities. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, one of the kind of issues that I knew I wanted to talk about in the book was the simultaneous um, emergence of tranquilizers on, in kind of international psychiatry, and it's emer- the emergence of the revolution itself. And the fact that these two things become really linked uh, for many Cubans in a kind of everyday way, that some of the pressures of everyday life in a context in which you're living on the on the kind of the within the, the war zone of the Cold War, you know, The Cuban Missile Crisis, Bay of Pigs, and everything after it, that tranquilizers become an important part of how ordinary Cubans manage that. So there's a kind of very uh, everyday quotidian register to this repeating madhouse, as I call it. But then there's also the appearance of the madhouse in literature and film and the arts. And all of these different representations, all of these different ways of of using Masorcha as a symbol, I think, allowed me to bring together both. The the concrete history of what happens in Mariel to make a contribution, I hope, to how we understand the role of Masorra in Mariel and beyond, and that role of Masorra in the history of of the kind of Cuban diaspora in the United States. There's also another story to be told here, um, which I have some thoughts about writing up at some point about how all of this relates to what's happening in the United States around dehospitalization, which I cover a little bit in the book. Um, And the echoes of this history, which continue into the present, you know, with the deportations undertaken under Trump, the ways in which U.S. politics is still thinking um, through the terms set up in some ways in Marielle and determining whether people can be deported or not. That's a whole separate kind of set of questions. But I think the, the larger point I wanted to make here is that it's really in this moment and in all of these different ways and registers that Masorra becomes enduringly more than itself, as it has many times in Cuban history before, but I think in a way that seemed particularly impactful uh, and important in this moment.
0: Absolutely, and you you kind of talk about you know the whole book essentially. You're you're, you're really emphasizing Masorra as an institution, but you're also looking at um, Cuban history within like this kind of long durée. Lens. So, would you be able to tell us a little bit more about like how would Masora as an institution or even psychiatry as a profession like help us better understand Cuban history? What does it mean, I guess? Uh, like, you know, the takeaway of the book, what does it mean to say that Cuban history is reflected in the history of a madhouse?
1: Yeah. Well, I should first say that pretty much every Cuban I talked to thought this was like the most obvious thing in the world that yeah. obviously the history of Cuba was the history of Masorra. Um, so I knew that I had to make the argument, but I also for at least a Cuban audience didn't have to make the argument because there's an obviousness here, some of which comes out of all the dynamics I was just describing. But I think in a more serious kind of analytical voice, I would say that, um, you know, because Masorra becomes a state institution, Masorra is the history of state politics in Cuba. That's quite clear. Um, And it's the history of the kind of reformist dreams and also their seemingly inevitable disappointment. Um, I think that Masatra allows a really unique window into long history of corruption in Cuban politics. Um, And in, in the book, I was looking for a more anchored way to talk about corruption, which tends to, like many other kind of categories and heuristics, assume this life of its own when people talk about it in the context of Cuba. And to really think concretely about what what corruption looks like uh, in an everyday sense and what its consequences are. I think Masotra allows us to see that. And Masora, I think most powerfully allows us to see the direct interplay between state politics, high politics, and this kind of eternal underside of social progress in, in Cuban history, which is social marginalization, the people who are left out, uh, the people who are forgotten and ignored, um, and who always seem to come back in the picture again and again and again. Um, no matter what government is in power. And uh, I think the the ambivalence of that relationship, the fact that there is so much heroic revolution and reform in Cuban history, but similarly so much abuse and so much neglect, all of which I think come together within the walls of Masora. But I think, you know, in a very prosaic sense, what appeals to me about telling the history of Cuba through this institution it's just the idea of populating a bit more with different people. You know, we, and we're all guilty of this, myself included, come back to the same people over and over and over again when we write the history of Cuba. Uh, understandably so. Individuals loom quite large in the, the history of modern Cuba, especially from José Martí, to Fidel Castro, and beyond. Um, yet I think that there is also a lot of value to writing social history, cultural history, political history, in which those figures appear, but are maybe not the central characters. And um, I think the more that we fill up our social and cultural histories with other kinds of people, actually the harder it's going to be to make the kinds of arguments like the ones that I really felt I was writing against in this book, that there was no history uh, at Masora to speak up before 1959, for example. Well, it just depends on what kind of history we're looking for. Um, And if you're uh, approaching it Um, maybe through the eyes of of those who, for political reasons, see it as important to say that there was nothing worth talking about, well, then I guess that's one issue. But this also gives us the opportunity, I think, to reevaluate what our analytical priorities are and therefore who our subjects should be.
0: Right. And I think that that lends itself um, to biography as um a way of kind of telling the sort of story right mm-hmm. um I, I encountered a very similar sort of thing with uh, mm-hmm. dr tiffany supia when we talked about her book on celia sanchez where mm-hmm. she came in saying you know celia sanchez like everybody started talking to her after 1959 but there's nothing about her before that so obviously mm-hmm. like people lived a full life before the Cuban mm-hmm. revolution and obviously mm-hmm. um Uh, Masora was an institution for a very long time before that moment. So it's important to kind of talk about it within that kind of like entire sort of lifespan.
1: Absolutely. And so,
0: um, I would not be a historian if I did not go directly to your source base and look Mm -hmm. at everything that you were looking at Mm -hmm. and pay close attention to obviously like what kind of archives you use. And so I wanted Mm -hmm. to ask you if you could share with us some of the challenges that you encountered um, in researching for this book. Obviously, there's a lot of politics around in the Cuban archives Mm -hmm. and things like that. So Mm -hmm. do you mind telling us a little bit about that journey?
1: Sure. Well, I should say the most obvious challenge and obvious, especially to historians of psychiatry is that there was no institutional archive for me to access. Mm-hmm. So the the generation of uh, institutional histories of psychiatry that had become so passe by the time I was in grad school, almost all of them relied on patient records, mm-hmm. um, archival patient records. And I had almost none. I had some from the colonial period. Um, but after that, there was almost nothing. And so uh, that... Could have, maybe should have been the disqualifying moment. At least some would argue that should have been the disqualifying moment in thinking about this as a book length project. Um, But in a way, I I think I'm grateful I didn't have those sources because it allowed me to ask different kinds of questions that um, maybe with those sources in hand, I wouldn't have been inspired to consider. And uh, in particular, it forced me to be really creative about bringing together different kinds of sources. So we talked about the press already. That's an extremely important source for the book. Um, And, you know, as things become more and more digitized, fewer and fewer will remember the days of, you know, literally paging through page after page of daily newspapers. Um, One of the Cuban researchers, I was reading alongside in the Biblioteca Nacional and told me, but you're looking for a needle in a haystack. And I said, <laughs> Yep, every single page, just trying to find something that says la um, and that that was how I did my research for the post-1933 chapters for the most part, page after page after page. Um, the the librarians at the Biblioteca Nacional very generously providing volume after volume after volume of El like, Crisol and all the other newspapers. Um when it came to the U.S. occupation government, there were uh, important sources in D.C. Of course, that I could rely on. Um, there were medical journals so I've talked about that a little bit, both Cuban and and foreign, which became a really important source base. But also literature, uh, film, um, first-person accounts, interviews with psychiatrists. Uh, the the kind of problem that I started with, I don't have patient records, became in some ways an opportunity to really expand what I thought um, counted as as valid records for writing this kind of history. So that challenge was there from the start. Um, in the book, I talk about the story of Masora's archive, what is alleged may or may not have happened to it. I think that's an interesting story in its own right, especially for historians of Cuba. Um, but of course, the politicization challenge was another major one. And it was, it was a particularly uh, pressing challenge in my case because of what I alluded to earlier, this kind of repetition of history while I was conducting my dissertation research. where We had another series of cold nights um, in a Cuban winter and uh, you know dozens of patients who died. Mm. Um, this was something that happened with some regularity before 1959, but it wasn't supposed to happen after 1959. Right. Uh, and granted, the institution was no longer being run by Ordaz, who had passed away at that point, but it became a kind of um, very glaring referendum on the state of the institution on the state of of Cuban health services and the medical profession. In some ways, I think publicly initiated a debate that is very much the one that's being had right now as well around COVID. So to what degree the kind of uh, reality of revolutionary health services matches the mythology that has grown up around it? Well, uh, this becomes, I think, one of the really early test cases of that and of course impacted my ability to do research in Cuba. There was obviously a lot of suspicion about what I was doing. Thankfully, I'd already undertaken one research trip at that point. So it was clear I wasn't just uh, looking to talk about what had recently happened, but that was a very big challenge. Um, And I think the other challenges are the ones that historians know well, but maybe become a little bit more acute in Cuba, which is, you know, writing about topics that some people see as interesting, but others see as as mostly unworthy. I should say, almost all the Cubans I've talked to have found this project to be important and valid. The challenge was more convincing um, colleague crawlers here of, of the same, especially at a moment when, as I said, institutional studies had kind of become passe. Um, but fortunately, I think I was doing the research and writing at a moment when Um, The history of psychiatry, as it was being written in the United States, was diversifying geographically to a significant extent. So um, there were calls to write about Latin America, to write about uh, decolonizing Africa and colonial institutions everywhere, of course, building on on earlier research that had done very much the same. Um, But I, I I did also, I think, in that find the challenge that every Cubanist confronts, too, of To what degree this is a Cuban story? Is it exceptional versus typical? Um, And this all comes down to choices. And I knew that this book at the end of the day was for Cubanists and I hope Cubans. Um, And uh, that meant that it was written in a particular voice that if I were trying to write it more comparatively is what happens at Masorra the same as what happens at other institutions. It would have required a different kind of perspective and take than the one I really wanted to provide here. Um, And that's a decision that, you know, I think everybody has to make who is your audience and therefore you write the book for the audience that you imagine, not all the audiences that could possibly come to it.
0: Right. And I think it was, um, I I often find that books that were more difficult to research are usually the most engaging because that kind of, um, that level of patchwork to kind of make it come together is so interesting to follow and to just see all the different ways that you guys were able to kind of, um, are able to sort of put, like, bring this book to life in many ways. Like, it's, it's really interesting. Um,
1: and I love the description of patchwork yeah. because it, it suggests that the research proje- process is inherently dialectical. And, you know, when you're making a quilt and trying to figure out how do all of these pieces fit together – What you're saying, I think is absolutely right. You are confronting that decision every single day when you don't have an obvious archival body of sources to rely on and therefore constantly making the case to yourself, uh, constantly trying to figure out what the through line is. Um, in a way that I think you're absolutely right, ends up being quite productive, analytically speaking.
0: Absolutely. And it's, and it's not just productive, but really engaging to kind of read, because obviously, you know, it, it requires a lot of thought and consideration. And like, I, I can't even imagine the amount of work that goes into it. Um, so do you have any, obviously, this book has been out for a few years. Do you have any projects uh, coming up that we should know about? Mm-hmm, hmm
1: um, yeah, it's almost, it's funny to be talking about this book because I, I feel close to it in a way I haven't for a little while, just having had this conversation with you. Um, although some of the, the questions, of course, have, have survived it. Um, so right now I'm working on a book project about knowledge production in and about the Cuban revolution. So how how we come to understand what the revolution is and that we being a very broad, we, all the different audiences for the revolution um, so I published a couple articles already from that research on Fidel Castro on TV, speaking of always coming back to the same subjects, and um, U.S. public television and how it depicts the revolution. And, uh, and that, that writing is, is well underway as we speak. So it's interesting to write a second book after you've written a first book. Um, some of the challenges more or less disappear because you know how to do some things like you know how to write a chapter which most of us don't know how to do the first time we write a book right. but then some of the challenges um, change shape shift or actually even new challenges present themselves so that's very much where I am right now um, but speaking of patchwork this is a patchwork book as well that seems to be <laughs> the kind of book I like to write
0: I mean if it's anything like the first one it's going to be great <laughs>
1: Well, that's very kind of you.
0: Thank you. No, yeah. it looks. It sounds. It sounds really interesting, and it sounds like something that needs to be talked about for sure. Because I feel like it's something that, com- like, it's it's almost like a topic of conversation that most Cubanists end up coming back to, anyways. But nobody mm-hmm. really kind of, you know, really dives deep into it.
1: Yeah, in a way it's actually it is the polar opposite of the Masorto book. Like the Masorto book is the needle in a haystack. Let me search for any mention of this I can find anywhere. I mean, this
0: one's the complete opposite. It's like, okay, it's, <laughs> it's absolutely
1: <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. And still doing so in a context where sources, as for all Cubanists, are are a problem, right? Right. Um and so I, I sometimes yearn for the days where all I had to do was find the right word and I had a new source. Um, but I also think and, and would advise anyone moving from a first project to a second project not to, to back their way into a, a keyword kind of um, monograph again. It, it actually feels like as challenging it is, as it is, it feels like a relief to know that the project survives even if that perfect source never appears in a way.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's really great advice for even graduate students working on a dissertation.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Make sure that monograph isn't just a monograph in the way that you think about it anyway.
0: Right. Uh, Dr. Lam, it was absolutely wonderful to, to be able to speak with you about your book and your research. It's been an absolute treat. I really enjoyed reading the book. I thought it was absolutely brilliant and like so well-researched and, and carefully crafted that I, I think you did an absolutely great job on this.
1: Well, thank you so much. It's been really fun to talk with you about it today.
0: <laughs> Dr. Lamb's book, Madhouse, Psychiatry and Politics and Cuban History, is available for purchase by University of North Carolina Press and other major book retailers. I highly encourage everyone to actually buy the book and read through it because as great as these conversations are, it does no justice to the actual work that's in the book. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. I'm your host, Rosemary Valenzuela Vicente. Until next time.